Lara Downs, the producer and host of The Green Room, a new show about the real lives of classical musicians, the people behind the music. This hour, you'll come backstage with me to meet three musicians at the top of their game and the height of their careers, violinist Anna Kiko Myers and pianists Jeremy Denk and Simona Dinnerstein. You'll hear fascinating, intimate stories about their lives at home and on the road, the day-to-day issues we all experience, work and family, ups and downs, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In our first segment, violinist Anna Kiko Myers joins me in the green room to talk about the joys and the challenges of juggling music and motherhood. Behind the scenes, before the downbeat, there's a room backstage where magic starts to happen. The green room, the place where musicians spend those last few minutes before a concert, going over their music, warming up their fingers, changing their clothes, putting on their makeup. And then someone knocks on the door and calls, five minutes to curtain, five minutes please, and it's showtime. This is a look into the real lives of classical musicians, a show about the people behind the music. I'm Lara Downs. Welcome to The Green Room. For a lot of us musicians backstage in The Green Room, it's not just about changing into our concert clothes and warming up and getting ready to go on stage. We might also be changing a diaper, scheduling a playdate or a parent-teacher conference, or reading a bedtime story. Except we might be reading that bedtime story over FaceTime because sometimes our kids are a few hundred miles away. Musicians face the same beautiful, crazy, wonderful, impossible realities as all working parents, and we just do our best to keep our families in tune. With me this time in the green room, Anne Akiko Myers, star violinist, consummate musician, and just another working mom. Anna Kiko Myers has spent almost her entire life center stage. She made her debut with the New York Philharmonic at 12, launched an international touring career at 16, released her first recording at 18, and just never stopped. More or less constantly on the road, young, single, moving a mile a minute, taking the world by storm. Until, five years ago, love walked in, and as love does, moved her in some new directions. To Texas, just for example. As you'd expect from such a seasoned virtuoso, Anne didn't miss a beat. I had just gotten married and we just moved to Austin. And then before I knew it, boom, I was pregnant. And I had all these concerts scheduled and I just did it. I didn't even think twice of delaying or canceling any concerts. I just charged through it. Musicians learn early on in life to be troopers. A missed note, a missed flight, it doesn't matter. The show must go on. So at first, a baby bump just seems like a little extra carry-on luggage. But the thing about baby bumps is that they just keep getting bigger. I was just waddling on stage playing Ravel Tsigan and trying to be this sexy siren at like eight and a half months pregnant. Can you imagine? And even though you might not fit into your favorite concert gowns, there are some unexpected perks to performing with Baby on board. Her feet must be so puffy, and yet she is getting through the entire concerto. Let's give her a freestanding O. Hey, I'll take it, I'll take it. 
As Anne herself expanded, so did her musical world, with a remarkable surprise present from her husband Jason, who commissioned a piece for her from composer John Corleano. Lullaby for Natalie, a love song from Jason to Anne and from Anne to their firstborn child. in there. Natalie's lullaby. just kept on going, now with Natalie in tow, and then, two years later, a second baby joined the traveling road show. I was eight months pregnant, and I decided to go ahead and do a tour of Japan and concertize throughout Japan. I mean, like, my husband was scaring me a little bit by saying, what if you give birth over the Pacific? What if you give birth on the plane? Have you thought of those little things? And you know, you panic a little bit, but then you just check with your doctor, like, are you actually dilating? <laughs> What's going on? And I just decided to risk it. And it was such a great experience being in Japan with my husband, my parents, my firstborn, and then little Andy Pandy, who was just tucked inside listening to all the music. I would feel her on stage, you know, kicking and moving around. And that's when you're reminded, oh, oh yeah, I'm pregnant. The first years of motherhood pass in a love-struck, sleep-deprived blur. It's so lovely, but it's also so hard, especially if you're back at work, and especially if your commute to work is a little unusual. I mean, we have plans right now. We're going to be overseas three times next year, once for recording, playing in Leipzig, and then playing in Lyon. And I'm just planning to bring the whole entire family. just packing up and getting sorted out and settled and acclimated. It can be really challenging, you know, the different time zones and just getting used to bouncing around all over the world. Car seats and sippy cups, toilet training and nursery rhymes. And before you know it, if you were a child prodigy who started your music lessons at three or four, you realize that it's high time for your own kid to get with the program. She's doing violin and she really loves it. Chicken on a fence post. Yeah! Woohoo! But this whole music lessons thing is not as simple as you'd think. First of all, remember, you were a child prodigy, so you have a certain amount of psychological baggage around this whole issue. Second of all, you have pretty high musical standards. A word to the wise, just keep your distance. I just want to stay clear away from it. It's hard though, right? I remember when Charlotte started piano lessons and I would sort of watch and I think this is this is not being done well. This is so <laughs> I'm paying twenty-five dollars for this and I could just 
walk away from the piano. Becoming a mom means that you're all of a sudden torn between the two things you love most in the world: your music and your children. And sooner or later, you have to choose, even for a night. And it just kills you to know that there are sad little faces waiting for you at home. I was gone last weekend in Detroit, and I was away for really two evenings. But it felt like I was away for two weeks. And when I got back, Natalie was really missing me so much. And just to tell her, I'm going to be away for one night next week. And she's like, "Really? Again, your violin is again taking you away from me." But we're lucky as musicians. When we do have to go away, at least sometimes we can leave our music behind. Lullabies, our love songs to our children, may be the best music we'll ever make. Every night, both my daughters listen to my music to go to sleep. It's just it. It's so incredibly moving. It's so amazing to hear. I want the Bach album or Vivaldi, and she says, "Oh, I want Vivaldi tonight. Oh, Vivaldi, or you know Bach, the new one. I want the Lullaby album. Lullaby, Mama. Just beyond moving." Here's the other thing about parenthood: it takes you full circle, back to your own childhood, back to your parents. And many of us who have been lucky enough to make a life in music had some pretty amazing parents behind us. And all of a sudden, we get that in a whole new way. That she allowed me to dream and allowed me to continue with my violin lessons and find the best teachers available, both my parents, to make that amazing. Great sacrifice so that I could have the opportunity to be the violinist I wanted to be. When I was seven years old, I went to the Hollywood Bowl, and I thought, "This is exactly what I want to do." But you know, the dream and then the reality—those are just two very different things. And to allow the opportunities to to just blossom, I will be forever thankful. The gratitude and the love we pass it on. We watch our kids grow and learn. We have our good days and our bad days, but we have to realize that we're giving them the best part of ourselves—a gift to grow on. That music is just so powerful. It's in your children's hearts and in their blood forever. Before we go on to our feature with that genius of a pianist, Jeremy Denk. Let's listen to Anna Kiko Myers perform "Lullaby for Natalie" by John Corleano, featured on her CD "American Masters."
That was violinist Anna Kiko Myers performing Lullaby for Natalie by composer John Corigliano. This is Lara Downs, and you're listening to The Green Room. In this special one-hour edition of the program, we're going backstage with three world-class soloists to find out what life is really like for classical musicians, behind the scenes, and before the downbeat. With me this time in The Green Room, pianist, writer, and certified genius, Jeremy Denk. Writing is very different from playing the piano, obviously, and, and it takes up a tremendous amount of mental space once you take it seriously, and that's why writers are such happy and well-adjusted people always. On the best days, you know, like something that I'll write about Beethoven will actually percolate over to how I play the Beethoven, and then, then they, they kind of make each other happy, the writing and the playing. Words and music. Back in college... Writing was a mental and physical escape from the hours spent in the claustrophobic, stuffy confines of the practice room. My happiest times at Oberlin, I think, were sitting, reading and writing in the, in the quad in Oberlin, in those rare moments when it wasn't snowing or sleeting. Fast forward a few years, 2005. Merriam-Webster had just declared blog the word of the year. The Huffington Post had just launched. 32 million Americans were reading blogs. Political blogs, travel blogs, gardening blogs, fashion blogs, mommy blogs, religious blogs, and the sporadic, insightful, and always humorous postings of one young, ambitious concert pianist with a little too much time on his hands and a lot on his mind. Jeremy called his blog, in a decisively nerdy play on words, Think Dink. Back then, somehow, I eked out a living, and I also had tremendous amounts of time to, to write for the blog, and I wrote you know, all kinds of things, uh, musings on, on what is kind of a very insular life. I, I mean, I enjoy writing about myself to a certain extent, but not that much, and I enjoy writing about music really well the most. All kinds of people liked reading what he had to say about music. His readers started following him from his blog into the concert hall. A major PR firm saw the value in Jeremy's reach outside of traditional classical music circles and took him on as a client. His concert bookings went up. Over the next years, his career flourished and grew into something most pianists only dream about. Fast forward again to 2012, and The New Yorker, you know, the holy grail for every serious writer under the sun, never mind concert pianists who do a little blogging on the side. The New Yorker published his piece, The Flight of the Concord, a boldly revealing essay about the interior and exterior conflicts, what Jeremy calls the narcissistic suffering, that come up in the process of making a recording. Other essays and reviews came out in the New York Times Book Review, The Guardian, The New Republic, and then Random House gave him a book deal for a memoir about being a musician, from piano lessons to life lessons. It was a career that most writers only dream about. All of a sudden, words and music were taking up a whole lot of space. You know, and I was in the middle of a tremendous amount of work, and I posted some things from Boston where I was working about basically um, how to deal with the sense of emergency and every, you know, all the deadlines and all the business. And 
I wrote this sort of satirical self-help thing where I had a three-step process of dealing with it, which was ignore all existing emergencies. That was the first one. And the second one was uh, invent sort of new things to be emergencies that are completely trivial. In this case, like the absence of oatmeal from my cupboard. Then the third step was this sort of mysterious deus ex machina thing where you just kind of reach this transcendental emptiness. But it's this whole process of, you know, discovering perspective through just this the ridiculousness of, of various coping mechanisms. It is very stressful to be in the middle of a sort of two careers. I don't know, I hope that humor kind of rescues it also from being just whining, which is, which is unpleasant. Uh, you know, we all get in these situations. Sometimes even three-step coping strategies don't do the trick. Sometimes you realize that maybe you're just in a little over your head. I had, for many years, this deadline of writing 32 blog posts about the Goldberg creation for NPR. Like, I'm determined I'm going to write these goddamn Goldberg creations blog. And I took a packet of index cards and the score of the Goldberg creations to my local wine bar, which is a mistake strategically. But I went there around nine and I was working with a, you know, a club soda or whatever and some tapas, you know, at the bar and writing in my index cards. And then this waiter from a nearby Italian restaurant who I've known for many years, he comes in and, and, and he's like, you got to try this Barolo or whatever. And then there's this great like series of ever more illegible index cards of my <laughs> Goldberg creations blog posts. And then like somehow several days go- later, I go back in there and then there's all these like oh it's nice to see you again and sort of raised eyebrows like god knows what was said and what we discussed and was i ranting about bach to the assembled bar i have no idea now you're writing for the new yorker you're playing piano all over the world sometimes by yourself sometimes with a violinist named joshua bell your recordings are on all the best of the best lists terry gross interviews you about ligety on her show apparently you're some kind of a freaking genius so what's the logical next step you get a phone call one day from Chicago, from the MacArthur Foundation. I, I was at the gym when I, when I got the mysterious call. Of course, I'm standing on the stairmaster between these two fitness nuts, and, I, and I, so I had to call them back, and I went home. And there was, you know, there's a little dance around the apartment. My parents were pretty bowled over, I think astonished. Uh, I finally shocked them. Here are some of the most self-exposed and enduringly public things you can do. Post naked pictures of yourself on the internet, publish your writing, record your music. Jeremy has done, to my knowledge, two out of the three. Words and music. Putting them out into the world takes a little crazy, a dose of courage, and a very good editor. You know, there's the first round of editing the piece where you, you know, the gist or the narrative is lagging. You have to refocus the entire story or, or add this. or you know. And that process can feel a lot like, you know, when I'm sitting with Adam Abe's house and editing through my records, you know, and there's something truly, you know, horrible and, and music destroying about that in a certain way. And then, you know, we're listening to some playbacks and I couldn't follow the music, which I myself had played. And I couldn't find where I was on the score. That whole process, once you deposit it into the microphone and then it comes back at you, it's, it's kind of a weirdly alien thing. It's the interesting parallels between writing and practicing and recording, right? Because practicing is like the daily writing of a you know, a writer, right? But the editing is really more like recording. Try to whip it into something that makes sense, and that and that's when you really need the counsel of another party, <laughs> some sane person to say, uh, you know, this is working or this isn't working. Once you've done it, 
Once you've committed your words to paper or your notes to the microphone, there can be something wonderful about revisiting the moment in time that you've captured there. For musicians raised on a diet of practice makes perfect, always trying to improve, always reaching towards some unattainable perfection, there can be unexpected surprises in revisiting the musical efforts of your younger self. I have a, my college audition tape still, which is uh, the cadenza in that performance. is I've never played it as well as that. It's, it's really it's really something. So that, that's really nice, you know. And, and I often think of those sorts of things, like the, the sort of the whole thing when you go out on stage and you have to trust you know, certain innate abilities that you have. That's very important. And those tapes are like you know, proof of that core of what you thought about music, even at a very idiotic you know, phase of your life. When you didn't know anything, but you knew some things, you really did. Words and music. There's a tradition here. Schumann was a writer as well as a composer, so were Wagner, Berlioz, and Prokofiev. More recently, Glenn Gould wrote about music as obsessively and profoundly as he played it. And then there was Leonard Bernstein, an eloquent author on top of all the rest. In Jeremy's own life, one figure who has inspired the synthesis of words and music is the late pianist and writer Charles Rosen. Rosen's National Book Award-winning The Classical Style, published in 1971, is a brilliant and meticulous examination of the classical period through the music of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. Rosen himself has been called a performer of the utmost distinction whose writing exactly mirrors his playing, subtle, precise, penetrating, and though by no means lacking in fun, intended to challenge. It's a description that could be well applied to Jeremy, too. The two men were close during the last years of Rosen's life, and the friendship inspired Jeremy the pianist to devote himself increasingly to the titanic trio of classical composers, and Jeremy the writer to produce the libretto for a new opera based on Rosen's book. I wanted to make it a love letter to him in some ways, but I didn't want it to be this single note. It wasn't just Charles the professor, but it was Charles. The professor who could not be stopped, Charles. Charles, the lover of knowledge, to excess. Finally, it's a chance to put words and music together. And it's a chance to blend serious scholarship with the wit and comedy that is part of the miracle of the classical style itself. And also the underlying sense of fun and humor that runs throughout Jeremy's writing, his music, and his changing, complicated, Denkian life. Music jokes about everything. It can't do knock-knock jokes or whatever, but, you know, it can do all kinds of other, other referential jokes. Part of the first scene where Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven, suddenly the New York Times arrives in heaven, and they read an article that says that classical music is dead. And I, I wrote a little text for them to sing over a, basically a Baroque lament. That's a real joke, is to listen to this classical Baroque lament on the classical music. All over the Western world, the alarm is sounding. That classical music is in trouble. 
Your subscription sales are dropping. Dropping. In some cases, dropping. more than 2% a year. On summers, on not balancing their bars. Audiences are getting older. Young people are turned off. So with all of this, the blog, the book, the concerts, the recordings, and the MacArthur, with so much on your plate and so much on your mind, what comes next? In the world of Jeremy Dink, There will be words, and there will be music, and some deep thoughts, and fun will be had. That may be one thing that I do with MacArthur money, is is create this sort of series of Denkian whatever's blathers. Denk blathers about music, that could be it. Before we hear the last of our three features, a visit to the green room with the insightful pianist Simona Dinnerstein, let's listen to Jeremy Dink's performance of the aria and variations one through three of Bach's Goldberg Variations.
was Jeremy Dank with the aria and variations 1 through 3 of Johann Sebastian Bach's Goldberg Variations. And you're listening to The Green Room with me, Lara Downs. I hope you're enjoying this behind-the-scenes look at how musicians balance the realities of life at home and on the road. With me this time in The Green Room, pianist Simona Dinnerstein. I'm in many ways doing what I always wanted to do and which I, in a way, didn't think I would achieve. This is the life that I wanted. Even though it's amazing having this kind of success, I have a lot of feelings about not being at home. I just want to be at home. I like being with my family. It all started at home. Twelve years ago in Park Slope, Brooklyn, Simona wanted a project to keep her busy during her pregnancy. Some people knit baby booties. She learned the Goldberg Variations. And by the time her son Adrian was born, her Goldbergs also emerged from gestation in an entirely personal and profound interpretation that the New York Times praised as evoking the image of a journey. When her self-produced recording of the piece shot to the top of the Billboard charts and she suddenly found herself with a major career on her hands, Simona and her family set off on a wild ride. Everything changed all of a sudden, and I think that it was really a shock for the whole family. I mean, we, to be honest, it took a few years for us to get used to everything that happened because it was incredibly exciting because suddenly I started having lots of concerts and I had a management and I had a record contract and I, I was getting a lot of media attention. I mean, the media attention in a way outweighed my concerts <laughs> for a time, but I still had to teach because things hadn't changed financially all that much. So I was still carrying a whole load of students as well as trying to get things off the ground, which didn't leave a, a lot of time for taking care of everyone at home. Adrian was four. Parenthood, family, everything got quickly and completely redefined. As long as he can remember, I've been traveling, and his dad has been the main person taking care of him. He said to me that he wished that there could be a robot, that they could make a robot that would look just like me and would play the piano better than me. And then they would send the robot out to play the piano because people would want to hear the robot because the robot was better than me. How sad that, you know, that was kind of an admission that I was away too much. A second-generation Brooklynite Simona was raised in a family of smart, creative, somewhat eccentric people who care passionately about what they do. Her father, the painter Simon Dinnerstein, was her model for living an uncompromising, unconventional artistic life. He's unusual in that he doesn't really think about sales. He just thinks about what he wants to do. And if it sells, that's good. Totally not practical as a person. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think he spent like 15 years just doing nudes when nobody was interested in nudes. And that's the kind of guy that he is. In many ways, she's her father's daughter. Her path has been unorthodox and self-made, and her musical choices are consistently authentic. And as her life in music goes on, as her career thrives through the A-list concert dates, the Sony classical recordings, all the many successes, 
she's learned some critical truths about the art and the heart of being a musician. I would like to have a long life with music. Even though it's amazing having this kind of success, I don't really trust it as being a measure of who I am. I know who I am. I don't feel very connected to the glamour side of classical music. I feel more that I want to be working with real people, connecting with people. I do want to do something that is meaningful in my community. My family is very committed to social justice, and I relate to grassroots movements and doing something in your own world, you know, where you live. A few years ago, Simona started building something where she lives, at home in Brooklyn, a concert series she calls Neighborhood Classics, at PS321, where her husband Jeremy teaches and where Adrian went to elementary school. Big-name guest artists donate their performances, and the proceeds from tickets go to fund the schools. She's found a way to make a difference. Neighborhood and community, home and family, the ties that bind, the strings that pull. Home where there are meals to cook and chores to do, and there's always love, but no standing ovations. I just want to be at home. I like being with my family. We have this fantastic dog, Daisy. She's a big old English sheepdog. And so in the morning in Prospect Park, they have this thing called off-leash where the, the dogs can run around in the meadow. So I take her there and I meet all the other dog walkers and I know all the dogs. That's after making breakfast for everyone at home and Jeremy and Adrian go off to school and I go up to the park with Daisy and come home and, and practice. Adrian comes home and it's like being the police homework patrol, completely involved in all of that. You know, the moment I come in the door, I have to pull my own weight. There's no special diva thing going on at home, uh, which can be frustrating sometimes for me because I'll get home and I'll be just wanting, I just want, I want like the red carpet treatment and I'm not getting it. But at the same time, I think it keeps it real and um, (laughs) it's probably good for everyone involved. And now Simona is circling musically back towards home with a new recording called Broadway Lafayette that features the music of another well-known native Brooklynite, George Gershwin. Gershwin, Ravel, and a new concerto by composer Philip Lasser. Although at first glance, this recording seems to wander far afield from the Baroque beginnings that launched Simona's musical journey. In many ways, it circles back to home, to friendship, and even to Bach. The Ravel and the Gershwin. Ravel heard Gershwin and then went back home and wrote his concerto, and you can hear the influence. Philip Lasser is a very good friend of mine and an amazing composer, and he wrote this concerto, The Circle and the Child, for me. I told him that I would like to play it alongside the Ravel and the Gershwin, and so he kind of had that in mind.
The concerto is all based on a Bach chorale, so there's also this beautiful link to Bach in it. By coincidence, I recorded it in Leipzig, Bach's home for so many years. There are actually a lot of circles in this recording in many different ways. Circles within circles. And as you trace the circles around, it turns out that in the end, the very best journeys always lead you back home. Here's Simona Dinnerstein performing Philip Lasser's piano concerto, The Circle and the Child, with the MDR Leipzig Radio Symphony Orchestra under conductor Christian Jarvi.
That was pianist Simona Dinnerstein with the world premiere recording of Philip Lasser's The Circle and the Child. Conductor Christian Yarvi led the MDR Leipzig Radio Symphony Orchestra. I'm Lara Downs, and you've been listening to The Green Room. Thank you for joining me for this one-hour special featuring Anna Kiko Myers, Jeremy Denk, and Simona Dinnerstein, behind the scenes and before the downbeat. So from all of us who are out there on the front lines making the world safe for classical music, whether we're at home in the studio or out on the road, packing or unpacking, doing our laundry, doing our hair, doing our taxes, it's just a day in the life and we'll do it again tomorrow. I'm Lara Downs at the piano. If you're in the audience at our next show, come backstage and see us in the green room. This is the WFMT Radio Network.